0: Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. To find information about the bridge, including service times and directions, check out thebridgeportage.org. We hope the following message inspires you to be one, make one. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands." You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, your livestock and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely against your neighbor, and you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God. You all may be seated. (coughs) So this is the passage that we're going to be diving into for the next 10 weeks, and there's a lot there for sure. So before we actually start, I want to do a little bit of a gut check here and ask you, what are you feeling after hearing me read through all 17 of those verses? Is there anything that stuck out to you, jumped out at you, that you really grabbed onto, you really, really liked? Was there anything that made you feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe? Anything that as I was reading, you're thinking to yourself, actually, I don't know if I agree with that. Or maybe there was one of this ten, the, these Ten Commandments that I read that you're thinking to yourself, actually, I know for sure that I am not following that one in my life right now. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and tell them your answers or go around with a mic and ask you to answer in front of the entire church, but I do want you to keep that in the back of your mind throughout this entire series. Because whether you're super familiar with the Ten Commandments and you've studied them for years and you can name them all off the top of your head like that, or whether this is your first time walking into a church building and you've never even heard the Ten Commandments read before. First of all, if that's you, welcome. I'm really glad you're here. But no matter where you are on that spectrum— Our hope and our prayer is that there's going to be something in this series, something in this first message that you are going to be able to grasp onto and is going to propel you forward in your relationship with God, even if that is just making the first step. So we're super committed to helping you learn in this series. So just one more plug. Like Joel said, we made about a thousand binders. So if you didn't get a cool binder, there are some still in the back. Please go grab those now. They have your message notes in them. And without further ado, we are going to launch straight into the official beginning of our 10 week series into the Ten Commandments. Are you ready? I'm super ready. I'm really excited. Are you excited? I'm going to, okay, I was going to say, you're a lot more lively than the first group. I just kind of had to assume they were. So, great job. You're already doing better. All right, so if you have your binders, please open them up. We're going to start on page number three, launching into our four reasons to study the Ten Commandments. So we have four main reasons why we even want to study the Ten Commandments, and those four reasons are our cultural realities, that they're key to our biblical ethics, that they're foundational to our discipleship instruction, and that they're part of God's law, and God's law in and of itself is good. We're going to have a chance to unpack every single one of these key points, but we're going to loop it back to number one, first and foremost, our cultural realities. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody in here when I say that there's a general ignorance in our culture surrounding the Ten Commandments. They're not super well known, and if I were to take a random sampling of ten people off the street and ask them to name all ten, I'm not sure if anybody would be able to do it. Maybe even if I took a random sampling of people in this sanctuary, I don't know if people would be able to do it. And I bring that up because how can you agree or disagree with a set of rules if you don't actually know what they say? And let me be honest with you, culture is off in this way, but so are Christians, so is the church. Because so many times I have heard people within the church say, oh, well, I'm just going to kind of disregard the Old Testament, normally for one of two One being, oh, well, it's the Old Testament for a reason. It's old. None of it actually applies to me anymore, so why would I even need to know it? Or the second one, there's a lot in the Old Testament. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot that I need to understand, and that just kind of seems like a lot of work, so I'm just going to leave it back there, and I'm just going to read the New Testament. Both of those go against what God's Word commands us to do. And here's another thing, is that the Ten Commandments are generally opposite of our cultural beliefs. If I were to take that same random ten people sampling off the street, how many of them would actually say that the Ten Commandments were the rules that they guided their life by? They're generally not very cared about or viewed as valuable or relevant in our current culture. And I actually have a chart that's going to point this out. This was a study done in the UK and in the United States on how people view the relevance of the Ten Commandments nowadays. And the more blue you see, the more people think that this is still pretty relevant. So thankfully, you shall not commit murder is number one. So that's great. But as we continue to go down this um, graphic, you can see that at the bottom, remember to keep the Sabbath day holy, we have a lot more green in here. People tend to not see that as super valuable anymore. And I think that this is funny because it kind of shows us the ones that we think are pretty easy to keep, they're up here, and the harder that they get to keep are down at the bottom. And here's the thing is, if culture were to come up with their own Ten Commandments, I'm not sure that we would even get a list of ten things, of ten rules. In fact, I think it could probably be summed up in one statement, which is, there's no one right way to live. Find your truth. Live your truth. Everyone should just do what is right in their own eyes and be the God of their life. And this very much contradicts the laws that the Lord gives us. And because the Ten Commandments go directly against so many of the values our society holds, they're generally viewed pretty negatively and sometimes even as offensive or rejected as harmful little example for you. I actually just graduated um, from a secular university about a year ago, and I heard this all the time on my college campus. People talking about the Old Testament and specifically the rules in general and saying, that sounds like totally exclusive and it's hating on every other belief and God actually sounds super mean. I don't know why you would want to follow him. Or This actually puts a limitation on my free will and what I want to do with my life, so I'm not going to listen to this. And here's another thing is that the Ten Commandments generally do serve as a way that kind of points out the ways that we are not living up to God's standards. And it's not very popular or comfortable to point out ways that people are wrong. But here's the thing, is if you call yourself a Christian, we're not supposed to be conformed to the world. So studying what God really says in the Ten Commandments is key to being able to look different in our cultural realities. So that's reason number one why we should be studying it. Reason number two is that they are key to our biblical ethics, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the ethical standards, the ideas of right and wrong, the legal statutes in the Bible, all of those can be traced back to the Ten Commandments. And it's actually really cool because every single one of the Ten Commandments that's listed in the Old Testament is then again repeated in the New Testament— So instead of having these two unrelated halves of the Bible, the Ten Commandments actually join them together so that Old Testament and New Testament form one big narrative of the biblical story. And I just think that's super neat. So reason number three is that they are also foundational to our discipleship instruction. So for centuries, Christian instruction from older, more seasoned Christians to younger Christians has been based on three main things. The Lord's Prayer... The Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments have been foundational to a lot of different um, doctrinal statements, faith statements, including something called the Heidelberg Catechism, which if you want to learn more about this, there's a QR code in your handy binder that I asked you to grab at the beginning that's going to take you to a website that gives you much more information on that. But in the Heidelberg Catechism, it cites the law, the Ten Commandments, so many times as an answer to how do we know or how do we understand our need for God and for what he commands us to do. And then our fourth and final reason is that the Ten Commandments are part of God's law and God's law is good. This is my favorite reason because I think it's so cool that we see this played out throughout all of Scripture especially in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, and they say this, "'Joyful are people of integrity "'who follow the instructions of the Lord. "'Joyful are those who obey his laws "'and search for him with all their hearts.'" But it's not just in Psalm 119 where it says this. If we turn back to the first chapter of this entire book, the first two verses, Psalms 1, 1 and 2, it says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. But it's not just the Old Testament that tells us that God's law is good. We actually see this in the New Testament as well. So turn with me to Romans chapter 7, verse 12. It says, but still the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. And if you're still not convinced after all of that, okay, I'm gonna give you the trump card. Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus actually says, Do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Jesus himself, the Son of God, recognizes that the law is good and has value for us. The best way that I have ever heard this described is by a teacher that I had about five years ago named Eric, and he explained it to me in this way, that God gave us the law to show us how life works best. And isn't that just like a good father to give us this good gift to guide us towards him? God gave us the law to show us how life works best. Jesus showed us how to do that, and the Holy Spirit guides us to be able to do that now. So those are our four reasons why we should even want to study the Ten Commandments, but now we're actually going to jump into the study of them. And to do that, we're going to use the same method that we always do here at the bridge, which is our CIA method which means context, interpretation, application. Context is just talking about, okay, what do the surrounding verses say? Where are we in the biblical story? Interpretation, what does this actually mean? And application, what do I do with this now? How do I apply it to my life? And so to do this, I'm going to set the stage for you for the context of the Ten Commandments by reading the first two verses of Exodus 20 for you again. They say this, Then God gave the people all these instructions— I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. I'm going to pause there before I go on to the third verse, the statement of the first commandment, because if we look at this first verse, then God gave the people all these instructions. The then at the beginning kind of implies that there were things that happened before Exodus 20, which, spoiler alert, there was a lot that happened in the Bible before Exodus 20. What are some of those things? Let's look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God, okay, who rescued you from the land of Egypt. Oh, okay. Some people were in the land of Egypt. Who was there? What were they doing there? The place of your slavery. So someone was enslaved in Egypt. If you don't know the story leading up to the Ten Commandments, you are going to lose so much depth in being able to understand the magnitude of how important they were to God's people. And so, to be able to understand what God is doing in these Ten Commandments and what He is showing Israelite moving forward, or showing the Israelites moving forward, we need to look back at the beginning of the biblical story and work our way up to Exodus 20. So, to do that, we've actually broken up the entire Old Testament up until Exodus 20 into five major parts, and um, you are about to hear the fastest and most entertaining summary of the entire Old Testament up until Exodus 20 that you've ever heard in your entire life. It's going to be great. But if you want more in-depth um, discussions on this. There's another QR code in your message notes that brings you to a video that tells you the entire entire story in a much more detail. But for right now, let's go back, starting with Genesis 12. All right. So in Genesis 12, we've titled this God's people. There were these two people named Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah were told by God to come out of the region that they were living in and move to this promised land named Canaan that God was going to give them and their descendants. The only problem is that Abraham and Sarah had no descendants. Big problem. So God tells them this in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. "'I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing.'" And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, you shall be blessed. God is promising Abraham and Sarah, saying, I know that you don't have any sons right now, but guess what? I am going to give you so many descendants, descendants that outnumber the grains of the sand on earth, so that you will be a great nation and the entire world will be blessed through you. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 50, which we've called God's people go into Egypt. Now, God has done well on his promise, obviously, because he is God. And Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 other sons, which ended up becoming the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, which is God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. So Joseph was one of those 12 sons, and he ends up getting sold by his brothers into slavery and also ends up rising to power until he's second in command to Pharaoh. He brings his entire family back into Egypt with him to provide for them during a time of famine. And so now all 12 brothers, all 12 tribes of Israel are in Egypt and not in the Promised Land. But before Joseph dies, he gives a word from God that he will bring his people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land just like he said he would. Which brings us to Exodus chapter 1, the deliverance from Egypt. So fast forward even more, the 12 sons of, uh, of Jacob have had more sons and more daughters and they've populated this place so much that Israel is flourishing in Egypt right now. And Pharaoh is kind of freaked out by it. He doesn't like it. He's worried that the Israelites are going to rise up against them. And so he actually oppresses them and forces them into slave labor. And during a point of time in history, he makes it a law that every single Israelite baby boy needs to be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. But there was one Israelite baby boy that was saved, and if you know the hit movie, The Prince of Egypt, which came out before I was born, then you might know this story of Moses. So Moses was the man chosen by God to be sent to Pharaoh to tell him to let my people go. And obviously, Pharaoh does not listen to that the first time, and so that's where the ten plagues come in. God sends these ten plagues, and after the tenth plague, Pharaoh finally lets the people of Israel, the people of Israel, go, and God brings them safely to a place named Sinai. And I actually have a, a map that's going to show you kind of geographically where this was happening. So the Israelites started up here in Goshen, the land of Egypt, down here through the parting of the Red Sea, and now they are down here in what is called the Sinai Peninsula, all right? So where you see Mount Horeb and then in parentheses, Sinai, that is where the story in Exodus 19 and 20 is taking place. So Exodus 20, God declares again his love for Israel. So Moses actually goes up the mountain at Sinai and he talks to God and God tells him this to say to his people in verses five and six. This is what God tells Moses. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. I think that this is so beautiful because this is before God has even given them the Ten Commandments. And so, before he gives them this list of rules, this list of regulations, God says, Hey, you are still my chosen people, and I love you, and I want to enter into this covenant with you. I just think that's the most beautiful thing. And that launches us into Exodus 20, which is where we started this entire message the start of the covenant. So Moses goes back up on the top of Mount Sinai and God gives him the Ten Commandments as all of Israel is waiting at the base of this mountain after God has just shown his power through his presence descending in thick smoke and thunder. It's so cool. And these Ten Commandments are written on these stone tablets, given to Moses, and then the people of Israel carry them around in something called the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of God's promise or covenant to them. So now we're back at the beginning, Exodus 20, right where we started, but there's one more thing that I want to go over context-wise with this and that's what is a covenant? Cuz to really understand the depth of the 10 commandments, that's something we really really need to get our heads around. So what is a covenant? In simple terms, a covenant is just a binding agreement or a legal contract. It's a promise. And there was something that happened in Old Testament times called the cutting of covenant. And that was when people would enter into this legal agreement and they would take an animal, and I'm being 100% real with you when I tell you this, they would take an animal, they would cut it in half, And they would separate the two halves of it so that the blood and the guts were running down in a river. I know it's kind of strange for us, but this is what happened. And they would walk through this river of blood as a sign of entering into this legal agreement with each other and also saying to the other person that, hey, if I dishonor my side of this covenant, if I don't uphold my end of this promise, you can do to me exactly what we just did to this animal. So it was a big deal covenants are also a huge deal because they are the driving factor that drive forward the biblical narrative. There are six main covenants that God makes with people throughout the Bible, and you actually have this chart smaller in your message notes. But those covenants are first the covenant in Eden, the covenant of creation that God made with Adam and Eve, saying, you can live with me forever as long as you obey me and do not eat from this one tree in the garden. Obviously, they ate from the tree, which is how we are here now. So, Next, we have the covenant with Noah, which is God saying to Noah, I will never again destroy the earth through a flood. The covenant with Abraham, which we talked about in Genesis 12, God promising Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that all of the nations will be blessed through him and his descendants. That brings us to where we are today, which is the Ten Commandments, also called the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. And these were the laws given by God to give righteous standards to his people and to point out sin until the coming of Christ, until the coming of Jesus, their Messiah. These were the laws that showed Israel how life worked best, how to move forward towards God. There are two other covenants that happen after this in the biblical story the covenant with David, which is basically God saying to this man named David that you, out of your bloodline, will come the Messiah, the Savior of the people of Israel and of the entire world. And that enters us into the new covenant in the New Testament, which secures salvation for all of God's people through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, that was a lot. A lot of context going back as to what are the Ten Commandments and what do we need to know leading up to Exodus 20. But the context allows us to better grasp the depth of what God was doing for his people by giving them these laws. And it's going to allow us to better grasp this next section of this message, which is actually the most important, and that is understanding the exclusivity of God. So to start this out, I'm going to read for us again the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. And they say this, Then God gave the people all these instructions. We now know what the then means. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. Notice here how it's a little, little g, a lowercase g here. Let me explain to you what that means. In the religious world of that time, the Israelites were surrounded by so many other cultures that actually worshipped many gods, and they would mix and match these lowercase g gods for every single part of their life. There were the gods of ancient Egypt, which I have a few pictures that we're just going to cycle through for this. The gods of ancient Egypt, there were the gods of Mesopotamia, which were actually a whole family tree. Gods would marry different gods and then have sons or daughters, and then those sons and daughters would marry the sons and daughters of other gods, and they would have sons and daughters. It's this whole intricate system. And then there were also the gods of ancient Babylon. But the Lord says to Israel, in verse 3, you must not have any other god but me. He is saying to them that none of these other lowercase g gods were able to do this great work for you in bringing you up out of Egypt. None of them can save you. None of them have provided for you. And you certainly can't do that for yourself. So you must not have any other god but me. And this is a consistent message from the Lord. Saying, oh, there's other gods around? Nope, it's just going to be me. This is not something that God says one time and then never mentions again in the entire Bible. This is actually a key component of God's character throughout the entire biblical storyline. And I'll show you that by jumping ahead a few books to Joshua. So Joshua chapter 24, this, this man named Joshua, is now leading the people of Israel. And this directly restates this first commandment. So listen to this, verse 14. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. Direct restatement of that first commandment. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the lowercase g gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the lowercase g gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Here's the thing, just like how I said that God's word is good and Scripture shows us that in the Old and New Testament, Scripture also repeats this, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. And in this particular verse, Jesus is talking about one specific lowercase g-god when he says that you cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. But I would actually argue that we could take out the word money, put a blank space there, and say that you cannot serve God and be enslaved to anything else. This was God's word to the Israelite people then, and it is the same word that he is giving to us now. There are no other gods in your life. Just me. And next week, we're actually going to dive deeper into what some of those lowercase g gods are for us in our current culture. But today I kind of want to zoom out and give you a bigger bird's eye view of something that I believe is a really, really big issue in our culture today. And that is that we have made ourselves into the God of our life. We have decided to say what's best for our own lives. We've decided to set our own purpose, to make our own rules, to live by our own standards, to chase our own desires, even if we know that it's contrary to what God commands. And yeah, Christians, we do this all the time too. Remember how I was talking about how all of those lowercase g gods had different purposes. They were for different areas of our life. Basically what we've done is we've synthesized all of those gods into one and we've said, okay, God, instead of giving every single area of my life to you, I'm actually going to take on that burden for myself and I am going to be the lowercase g god of my own life. And that never works. What we've done is we've taken this mantle upon ourselves and for lack of a better term, we've actually shoved God off of the throne of our lives and tried to sit there ourselves. And this is not something that is new. This is not something that has come about with like millennials or Gen Z. This has been happening since Adam and Eve first disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. This has been something that humanity has been failing at over and over and over again. We try and be our own gods and my question is, why would we do that when we know that there is a God who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is all-loving, and who wants to guide and lead us, who wants to welcome us into this covenant with him, into this exclusive relationship with him that just has one, one stipulation, which is exclusivity, me and only me. The same God with the same character who spoke this to the Israelites then is the same God with the same character that is speaking to us now. And I'm going to use a, um, an analogy of marriage vows here because that's the covenant that most people are familiar with. And let's think about it for a second. When you're entering into marriage with someone, you are normally very excited to go into that relationship. And if you're not, you might want to reevaluate that a little bit. But... It's not, it's not seen as way too much or too big of an ask to say to the person that you are about to marry, hey, I'm expecting that you are only going to be in a relationship with me, that it will be an exclusive relationship with me and me alone. No one thinks that that is an outrageous demand because that is essential to your relationship. That's the starting point. It's foundational in your relationship. And the same thing goes with your relationship with God. There's a reason that this is commandment number one. Jesus, God's Son, God himself, acknowledges this in Matthew chapter 22 when he says, Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment for a reason. Jesus acknowledged the importance of only having this level of commitment to the Lord and to the Lord alone. And he actually ups the ante on this in John chapter 14, verse 15, when he says, If you love me, then you will obey my commandments. If we love him, then we will follow this command to be committed to him and to only him. This is not an outrageous demand, but I want to be clear here. Jesus isn't saying that he just needs you to be a little bit more religious or to try a little harder, or to check one more box, or to be able to follow just one more of the Ten Commandments in order to prove that you love him. That's not what he's saying. But this is the evidence that the law of God that was written 3,500 years ago and given to the people of Israel, written on stone tablets, can now be directly written onto our hearts. That through the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can now be in this same covenantal relationship with the one true God. The same God with the same character who invited Israelite in Israel to the same covenant relationship expectation is the same God with the same character who is inviting us into that same covenant with him now that we can now uphold because of Jesus. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You must not... Have any other God but me? God is telling us to hand everything over to Him, to commit our whole selves to Him, to vow that we will worship Him and Him alone. As Jeff Wenke and I were working on this message together, we were thinking of what might it sound like, what might it look like for us to commit ourselves to the Lord, to vow ourselves to the Lord. And we, we wrote this up and we modeled it after marriage vows. I'm just going to read this for you. So do you, I'll use myself, Kayla, take the Lord God Almighty to be your sovereign ruler of your life? Do you promise that regardless of the cultural elevation of self, you will be wholeheartedly, you will wholeheartedly love the Lord your God alone? Will you forsake all other gods? Will you stay obedient to his laws and exclusively worship God and him alone for as long as you shall live? What is your answer? I talked at the beginning how there's the possibility of a spectrum of people here today. And whether you're one of those people that falls into the side of the spectrum where you've been following God for a really long time, where you've studied the Ten Commandments, you know him, you know what he commands of you, you you live into that covenant relationship, or whether this is completely new for you, this next statement, this applies to every single person in here. And that is that if you don't agree with the first commandment to be in an exclusive relationship with God and God alone, to have no other gods but him, then there's really no reason to listen to the other nine weeks of the series. If you can't or are unwilling to be challenged by any other authority besides yourself, then there's no reason to listen to the other Ten Commandments. Because this is foundational. This is essential. This is the relationship core with the same eternal God who first spoke these words to the Israelites 3,500 years ago. So now I'm going to put the ball in your court for a second and invite you to to take some kind of step, some kind of commitment to God today. And in my head, there's one of three ways that you can respond to this message. The first one being that you walk out of these sanctuary doors without really making any kind of commitment and continue to live your life and come back next Sunday and kind of go through the motions, but. It's really what I hope you don't choose, and honestly, I feel like that's what God hopes you don't choose, too. The other two are that you can personalize these vows. If we can get those back up on the screen for a second. you personalize these vows to God and you say, all right, Lord, I am admitting that I cannot be my own God, that I need the saving grace of Jesus Christ, that I need to enter into this exclusive relationship with you and only you. I'm renouncing all other gods and I am choosing you, Lord. You can start that relationship today. And even if you're one of those people who have been going to church for so long and and studying his word for so long, but maybe you've fallen away from this. You've let yourself sit on the throne of your life and you're not living into this covenant relationship you can also make the choice to repent, to turn away, to confess and rededicate yourself to the Lord with a new, fresh commitment today. And I want to give you some comfort in knowing that no matter where you fall on this, there is a loving God waiting with open arms and ready to welcome you back into or into, for the first time, a relationship with him. And so, The band is actually going to lead us in some time of closing worship today, and as they do that, there are going to be prayer team members up at the front, off to the sides, if you would like to pray with any of them. But I really want to challenge you to not walk out of this sanctuary without making even the tiniest step forward. It doesn't have to be a huge commitment. It doesn't have to be something... Super profound, but just taking the tiniest step forward towards God because I promise you that he is waiting there and he has his hand outstretched to you, ready to welcome you back. And so as we enter into this time of worship, I'm going to ask you all to please stand with me one more time. I'm going to close this out by reading the last, or the first three verses of Exodus 20 one more time. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt to the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church in Portage, Michigan. For additional information, check out thebridgeportage.org or stop by and visit us.